listening to Shakespeare and Contemporary Theory with Nima Parvini. It's been a few months since the last episode of Shakespeare and Contemporary Theory. I've been deeply immersed in writing my forthcoming book, Shakespeare's Moral Compass, Ethical Thinking in His Plays. One of the people who has influenced my thinking in this new book is James A. Knapp, who is a professor of English at Loyola University, Chicago. Back in September last year, I recorded a conversation with him about Shakespeare, character and morality. Now, as it turns out, trying to get a grip on moral thinking in Shakespeare's England is a pretty massive topic, so the book has been robbing me of all of my free time. Because of this, it's taken me until now to get around to editing and releasing this conversation, so I'm grateful both to Professor Knapp and to you, dear listener, for your patience. Professor Knapp's books include Shakespeare and the Power of the Face and Image Ethics in Shakespeare and Spencer. I'd especially recommend seeking out his essay Beyond Materiality in Shakespeare Studies, which appeared in the journal Literature Compass in 2014. It seems strange to me that the Academy would need to be reminded that what people think and feel is just as important as what they wear and eat. Ideas still matter, just as matter matters. So whatever you're thinking or feeling, whatever you're wearing or eating, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Shakespeare uh, and Contemporary Theory. I'm here with James Knapp. How are you doing today, James? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. And, uh, well, in the interest of time, I will ask my first question, which, as ever, is this. What was the intellectual climate like at the start of your career? And how do you think it has changed between then and now? Uh, Well, when I started... uh my career, it was in the early 90s, and there are two really major differences, I think, between then and now. The, the first was that uh, the, the era of, of high theory was still very much um, in full swing. The, the, there was a sense that you really almost had to make some kind of reference to Derrida and Foucault uh, to have any kind of cultural currency um, in, in the graduate programs where, where I did my, my degrees. Uh, and, but it was, it was not the, the, the exciting first stage. It was, it was sort of once everybody had been indoctrinated. Um, so that was one sort of overarching thing that, that spanned not just Shakespeare studies, but sort of, uh, English studies, uh, where I was doing my work in terms of early modern studies, the new historicism was, was really the dominant um, mode. And even though it had already received the kind of criticism that we're now familiar with, um, sort of the, the, uh, the point that, that there was a formula that involved an, an archival anecdote that then led to uh, large statements about, um, you know, sort of the, the cultural trends on display in literary works. Um, the, there was a sense that you, you were going to be a new historicist one way or another, either an unreconstructed one or, um, or, or some sort of a new version. Uh, and so that was, that was sort of the climate, uh, that, that I was introduced to. So it was the, the sort of big umbrella of, of, of high theory and then the, the historical turn towards, uh, other materials that new historicism and cultural materialism for that matter, 
um, uh, brought attention to cultural context. Uh, but uh, it was still, you know, very, very um, theoretically inclined. And I think the main thing I've seen change, uh, and this is even just reflecting on, you know, looking at CVs of younger scholars as they apply for jobs now, um, there's much less, in my view, of uh, sort of identification with theoretical schools as there was when I started out. There were, there were self-professed uh, Lacanians, Derridians, Foucauldians, and now I see um, much more emphasis on uh, the sort of work that best emerges from the texts under consideration. And I, I guess I see that as, a, in some ways, a refreshing thing. Um, it's, of course, also in some ways uh, on the heels of what many considered a sort of crisis in English studies when, when it was not clear what the next thing was going to be. The earlier uh, obvious sort of movement from you know, new criticism or formalism to high theory to new historicism, all of those changes seemed sort of um, organic, I think, to, to uh, at least American academics. And when new historicism started to uh, sort of lose its really massive sway that it had in the, in the late 80s and through the 90s, uh, people wondered what the next thing was and nobody knew. And uh, it, I think it, it caused some anxiety, um, but not for me. I think that that was actually a good thing. I think we're now, we're now focused more on what, what the texts do. Okay, well, we, maybe we'll return to some of that uh, a little bit later. Um, but I want to turn now to some of your uh, recent work, James, uh, which seems to have been part of a call for a return to a consideration of character. So what has motivated this work, and why do you think the character study in particular fell uh, so out of favor in our discipline, uh, and in particular in Shakespeare studies? Uh well, it's a it's a good question. It's a it's a long it's a long story. I think um, the, the the first thing I'd say is that um, my interest is not so much in character exactly, although uh, certainly um, it could seem that way. And I'll, I'll say that and then return to it. <laughs> um, what what I think why I think character fell out of uh, you know out of favor. Um, obviously, going back to you know Elsie Knights and and his his you know famous essay um, is you know, is partly uh, a product of critical trends and methods in the 20th century. That uh, there was a a way in which Shakespeare was, if you look at the long history from the 17th century, Shakespeare was uh, received you know critically first, of course, mostly by editors. Um, but also by uh, practitioners of, of the creative uh, arts who were interested in, in what his achievement was, saw it through their own lens and tried to, to make it um, you know, something uh, for their own time. And a lot of times that became character. It seems like that moved into uh, a, more, a broader sense of why do we, why do we still want Shakespeare that, that existed through the, the, the sort of explosion of Bardolatry in the 18th and 19th century um, that that basically had to connect it to uh, human uh, kind of universal human nature or something like that, um, and so 
it was only, I think, in the 20th century when you started to get a reaction against that, which really wasn't necessarily, in my view, against character as a, a literary device or as an aspect of dramatic um, you know, production, but more as a, a criticism of the idea that characters were in some way real people. Um, and in that respect, I, I'm completely in agreement. Uh, one of the things I always tell my students is, you know, don't ask questions uh, that go beyond the text because the characters are entirely the text. So, you know, these, these questions of uh, are they are characters people? It seems to me is is definitely um, you know settled question. Uh, the the impetus behind it, I think, was initially formalist, which is sort of you know why I tell students that they should <laughs> look at at the text first. Uh, for formalist critics, they you know they they pointed out that now obviously we can't answer questions that are extra textual because they're uh, entirely speculation. But I think the more recent um, uh, animosity towards character studies came out of more more theoretical, especially um, you know more high theoretical issues, especially things related to ideology critique and cultural studies, where the idea was that we need to see these texts as participating in larger cultural, social, ideological, political, economic um, kind of um, uh, uh, fabrics that um, are, are tell us something about how historical change happens and that when we think of these characters as individual real people we obscure the fact that those kinds of um, larger uh, issues are at stake so for somebody who's interested in ideology critique um, they saw it as a grave uh, mistake one that blinded people to uh, the sort of kind of ideological um, uh, implications of the plays and of the characters as they were written so that uh, I'm sorry, that's a long response, but I do think it's important to see the whole trajectory because mm. it's only after that important work that pointed out the the larger structures could have been sort of esta well established that then we can return to the question of why do these characters have such uh, a claim on us? And I don't think that that's uh, I think that is the new resurgence in character criticism. I don't think it has to do with any kind of large scale. Um, return to a, a naive version of mm. characters as real people, but I think it has to do with something more like a sense that uh, that those ideological inflections were valid, and, and the ideological uh, analysis done on literary texts uh, is is incredibly important. But this is another aspect of that. Uh, obviously, if ideology served cold is not nearly as effective as ideology that speaks to individuals who can then recognize themselves within that format. So uh, that's where I see um, the, 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 the disfavor. Um, and also I see a little bit of hope that we're going to return to these questions because any wholesale rejection of, a, of an entire aspect of uh, you know, Shakespeare seems to me problematic. You've already touched on L.C. Knight's, uh, I mentioned his famous essay, uh, of course, we're talking about how many children hath Lady Macbeth. That's the one you had in mind, right? That's correct, yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, for Knights, it was absurd to think of literary characters as uh, real people with uh, motivations. And, you know, you've already touched on where you stand on that. I mean, broadly, you'd agree with uh, Knights there. Um, but can we think of Shakespeare's characters as having... So rather than thinking of them as real people, 
can we think of them as having motivations and is it always wrong to think about them in those sorts of terms you know what's driving a character like uh, Macbeth as opposed to how many children has he got right and and, yeah I think that's exactly the issue it's uh, in some ways it's it's maybe just a, a matter of semantics that people are worried when you when you suggest that we're talking about motivation that we're talking about some kind of autonomous individual that is now emerging from the page but clearly actors, and this is one of the things that I think is also an, an interesting uh, um, and promising uh, change in Shakespeare studies, and that is the, the emergence of performance studies as something that's really in dialogue with, with critical studies and textual studies. Um, actors all the time have to consider the motivations of a character in order to bring it to life. And so clearly something is there and written into these characters are, are motivations that I find absolutely essential to the understanding of Shakespeare. So I don't, I don't want to uh, say that I think uh, we shouldn't think in those terms. The problem just becomes when we believe that those, those motivations somehow have a life beyond the text. And there, mm-hmm. I think, uh, you just end up getting into a strange space of speculation. At the same point, or you know, at the same time, when you're looking at motivations within the text, um, there are obviously implications for our understanding of how uh, people think and and act. And uh, in that sense, and my work is very uh, much influenced by philosophy. I believe that a lot of the the things that Shakespeare does in his plays um, amount to staging real life situations uh, that then we can reflect on. Are those Things that actually happened, of course not. They're fictions. Are those people real people? No, of course they're fictions. But there's something useful in thinking about fictions in relation to um, actual people and how they are motivated and how they act. Uh, so I don't know if that sounds like equivocation, but uh, but I think that's that's the opening that was that was sort of missed when we rejected character criticism altogether. Well, I, I, I do think there is something uh, at stake here, and I, I'd like to point to a uh, perhaps a tension between what you've just said and maybe the harder versions of new historicism and cultural materialism, um, you know, from the 1980s, where you have uh, various different critics who would argue that, for example, the entire notion of character comes later on. And that it's anachronistic to read it back into the early modern period or, you know, the idea of psychological interiority um, is, you know, unthinkable to the early modern mindset because, we, you know, we can't find any evidence of people talking about it. Uh, I mean, I, I know in my mind, uh, my response to that has always been, well, yes, but, you know, look at Hamlet. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, it, it, what what is your response to those sorts of uh, rejection of looking at, uh, you know, the idea of something like a character motivation on historical grounds that they wouldn't have had a notion of those sorts of things uh, in Shakespeare's time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I think that this is one of the, it's a tendency of, of uh, theoretical formations, critical formations to state uh, a case in as stark terms as possible. Um, but I guess I would, I would, I would side with, uh, um, you know, critics who are a little bit more pragmatic in that respect. Uh, so, you know, t- to give an example, more recent historical example, there's been the uh, arguments made about the, the materiality of emotion, that emotion wasn't 
um, at all uh, a sort of mental thing. And that it was a t- entirely uh, fluid uh, humors, spirits, um, all of which uh, have to do with the, the you know, sci- prevailing scientific and medical theories of the time and, and certainly have purchase on our understanding of the way emotion worked. But uh, most people who, who read the plays clearly see that, that emotion was also considered something that was felt and not just felt physically. So people you know, didn't always just say, oh, I feel, you know, my, my uh, you know, particular black bile rising or something like that. You know, they said, I feel, you know, angry. <laughs> and so I, yeah. uh, I, think, um, I think that's the, that's the response I would, I would say to this, the, the, the initial move of historicism to say that the past is utterly unrecoverable and yet we're really in the business of trying to recover it. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't see it as so completely stark. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing as, as changing. There had to be an adjustment at some point with historical criticism to say, of course, the literature doesn't just reflect that period in the old historicist way, but also it doesn't offer us in even a more sophisticated historical analysis, uh, you know, a direct access to what things were like and that certain things are just uh, completely different than how we experience the world and we can't really fundamentally can't understand them. I think if it were, tr- were true that we, that, that we really can't understand them and the, these things that have purchase for us were, were completely out of the you know, question for those, uh, those writing the plays and those viewing the plays, as well as other poetry and literature, then we would not be able to experience it at all. I think, I think Shakespeare would be really impossible for us to read. And I don't think that's the case. I think there's, there's something going on there. Your example of Hamlet is a good one. Clearly, he's referring to interiority. There's references to interiority all over the place in early modern literature. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody in that period uh, had the same conception, post-Cartesian conception of the human subject, obviously, um, but they had something <laughs> that they could refer to as inner versus outer. Yeah, you, you mentioned anger there. I mean, I, I've been reading a bit of Aristotle recently, and I've also been reading some Seneca, and they have some very similar passages when they talk about uh, anger. You know, I think Aristotle talks about... Um, Imagine if you had a dog and there was a knock at the door and the dog starts barking, you know, uh, wildly. It's like uh, he's saying, well, you know, you, you can attempt to control anger, but it's a little bit like trying to explain to that dog that, uh, you know, there's somebody behind the door and it's, it's all right type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Seneca also has, uh, you know, writes very memorably on anger, on about the, the importance of controlling anger. And it just see, I mean, it just seems uh, when you're sitting down and you're reading these people who were writing, you know, in some cases thousands of years ago. In the case of Aristotle, uh, was it two, you know, at least uh, fifteen, sixteen hundred years ago? In the case of Seneca, and in Shakespeare's case, five hundred. Uh, uh, was it four hundred and fifty years ago? Um, and I, you know, it just when you hit those moments, it just makes you wonder. Well, how much of this? Uh, how much of the historicism should we take at face value and how much does just the basic experience of knowing what it's like to be angry supersede any of that? Or are we, are we lapsing into too much of a common sense, uh, a common sense humanism, I guess? That would be my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and obviously it seems to me the, the, the sort of middle way is, is always the best way, and that is 
you know, I, I, I tell my students that we're, we're reading a, a time, you know, we're reading texts from a time that, that would, if we were able to have access to it, would, would feel very unfamiliar to us and that would have all sorts of aspects, uh, you know, and qualities that, that would be unrecognizable. But that doesn't mean that all of it is unrecognizable. And so I think that's where we have to be, we have to be careful. The, the lessons from historicism that are so powerful uh, help us understand that, that culture uh, really does change, that language changes, that the way people, um, the, the possibilities that people can uh, imagine um, are, are sometimes uh, not the same possibilities that we have now. And that's, that, I think that's crucial. But, but there, are, there also have to be continuities. And um, when we get to the point where there's no continuities, I think those are the things that are the most troubling for uh, any study of, of literature that, that we want to say is meaningful now. Because if, we're, if we say that Shakespeare is only um, uh, completely, uh, you know, historically distant from us and that its, it's, it's form of understanding of the human is completely uh, inaccessible, then I don't think we have much of a case for asking students to read it. I don't think we have, uh, you know, the, the argument that it's, that it's valuable is it, it can't be valuable simply on the basis of its, uh, its witnessing of a particular specific moment in history. I don't think that history for history's sake um, alone, as if it has no impact on the present, is something that is particularly valuable. Okay, well, we're, we're angling towards my next question here, and uh, apologies in advance, because this is quite a big question I'm aware to ask you. Um, <laughs> your work has been concerned with questions around ethics and uh, morality. Um, to what extent is morality a product of our time and our place? <laughs> well, no, it's a it's a good question. Actually, this one, it's it, I don't have as much trouble with this question. Partly, you'll see it comes out of my 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 previous response because uh, the way I think about uh, ethics and morality is I really and this is as you know um, a, a, a particularly vexed question within all of the philosophy and, and literary studies that that deal with these questions. But I, I actually like to think of a fairly strong distinction between morality and, and ethics. And I would say morality is something that is codified. The, the way I like to think of it is something that you can actually identify fairly specifically based on uh, textual examples, uh, you know, actual statements of, of moral um, belief from a variety of periods. And those clearly change over time. So there's things that, and, and, and it's in our interest that they change over time. Those are the kinds of beliefs that uh, are often, you know, projected as um, as prescriptions or prescriptions, both for behavior and that you're supposed to act as, according to a certain code. The code is identified. It's clear. If you transgress it, you are breaking that kind of moral code. Uh, and that is, I think, very much something that should be a subject for historical analysis. You know, how, how have moral uh, values changed over time? What is the evolution of certain kinds of morality and moral thinking? Um, but I would set that to one side because I think that's something that's always played against 
The other, and for me, much more interesting question of ethics, which I see, and again, these definitions are, you can find definitions from different people all over the place, but the one I like to think of with ethics is that it's much more about lived particular situations and how to act within a particular situation um, according to all of the the details um, that surround that. And that includes the individual, that includes uh, the context in which the individual is acting, and, of course, the moral system of beliefs that is operative at that time. So they're not uh, uncoupled so much as uh, they're a different sort of question. So you can ask, just to give an example and not be so completely abstract, uh, you can ask a question about, you know, is it or is it not, um, you know, morally wrong to commit adultery? Well, you can say it's absolutely morally wrong to commit adultery according to the code uh, at any given time, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the, the, the situation. It may have a very severe punishment associated with it or not. But then there's the situation of what happens in the ethical realm, and is there any situation in which that is mitigated in some way? Uh, this, of course, would never be a uh, an outright uh, sort of excuse for some of the bigger prohibitions like murder and, and infidelity and things like that. But ethics becomes incredibly interesting when you start to weigh, as they do in intro philosophy classes on ethics, uh, those situations where there's gray area, the, the well-known things about, you know, do you save the, you know, the 80-year-old woman or the, you know, the five-year-old child from drowning, and people choose the five-year-old child uh, based on a set of beliefs, <laughs> maybe, unless it turns out that the 80-year-old woman is the president uh, of the country in which you live, uh, and then maybe you choose the, the, the woman. That kind of situational ethics se- seems to have a, a much more interesting and pliable um, sort of application, and I think that that's what Shakespeare is is more interested in, and why it's so hard to pin down any kind of um, you know position in Shakespeare. We the, the attempts to say Shakespeare is a you know cultural conservative progressive uh, those always seem to me to fail because you can find examples on all sides. Shakespeare as proto feminist, Shakespeare as you know rearguard misogynist. Um, but if you look at the way he stages ethical situations, um, I think the interest there is in the complexity of those contextual situations and how difficult it is to, with certainty, say you would choose one or the other uh, uh, action based on a moral code. Sure. I mean, just to get into some examples, because I, I guess it's always fun to do that with ethics, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> get into individual examples. But if I've understood you um, correctly, um, you could ask a very, you know, a, a big but quite basic question, like, for example, you know, is it okay to lie? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I could, I don't know, give some examples like, well, okay, is it okay to lie? But um, let's say, you know, your girlfriend or your wife comes to you and says, well, do, do, you know, do, you, do, do I look nice in my new dress? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, secretly in your head, you're thinking, well, you know, not particularly, but you probably, you know, most people would recognize that you, you, you tend to just give a, a response that says, yeah, you look nice. It look, you look fine. And if you asked various different authorities, let's say the works of Immanuel Kant or the catechism of the Catholic uh, uh, church, something like this, then they tend to prescribe, you know, they'd say, well, no, it's not all right to lie even in that circumstance. Whereas I guess you're saying that 
maybe Shakespeare could understand that there are specific circumstances under which maybe the correct thing to do, you know, for whatever reason, is to give a response that isn't quite the the truth that you have in your mind. Would you? Yeah, I guess something something along those lines. So I'll put it I'll put it in a slightly different way. I think rather than because the and, and here's the, the the key for me in my thinking is that um, it seems that that judgments about whether it was the right or the wrong thing to do uh, mm-hmm. always are, are done um, in in retrospect. So it's always after the act has been done that you can say was it or was it not the right thing to say uh, that you know she looked okay in the in the dress when you could have been straightforward and said what you think mm-hmm. that's something that you can have uh, a reflective conversation about either with yourself or others and determine a proper uh, you know path of action so uh, to bring it to the to the to the the drama i would say that what shakespeare does for us is you know we have those if we if we talk about the situations in which people do uh, questionable things in shakespeare's plays which they do all the time uh, we can almost always come up with what was right or wrong. Nobody uh, reading Othello says uh, it was the right thing for Othello to kill Desdemona. It's absolutely wrong. It's wrong by the moral code, as I was defining it, and that's just true. And then it's also wrong in, in the situation. He he gets it wrong. But I think what Shakespeare's more interested in and what I think of as ethics, uh, what's more interesting about ethics for me is what what are the situations in which it's very difficult to say that you could come to the same conclusion that you will come to in retrospect. Um, and that's what I would say. So, so in staging Othello, if, if Othello, uh, you know, if there was no chance that we could imagine why Othello took the path he took, then I think the plays would be much less interesting. I think they're interesting because he's faced with a set of circumstances that's complicated enough that multiple courses of action appear plausible. Uh, as the right thing to do, and we can say he's wrong, but uh, but we can't say he's uh, you know sort of completely blind. I guess is the is the way I would say it. I'm 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 not. I know I may be in the minority there. Uh, no, I mean you you can do that with a with a lot of the um, Shakespeare's characters, especially um, especially in the tragedies. I, I I read a reading of um, of Hamlet where um, you know. <laughs> almost the question why does he take so long to kill claudius is the wrong question because you know if if you were placed in that exact same scenario you'd probably want to get it right you'd probably want to <laughs> conduct all those different investigations and if you just go by the information that hamlet has it would actually be extremely rash to kill uh, claudius even in act three like he he doesn't have all of the information until arguably he never has all of the information so um, you, you know, from that point of view, you can actually understand why he behaves the way he does. Um, yeah. but, but I actually want to ask you a different question, um, okay. which is about this question of judgment, of uh, moral uh, judgment. Because it seems to me that as the audience, we're constantly put in a position where we're either being asked to judge or we can quickly make, even if we're not being asked to, we do make judgments all of the time. We're kind of... Um, we almost do it without without realizing you know was that the right decision at, at this moment um i think of key crush crunch points like for example um the moment in richard ii where he stops the he stops the trial by combat and uh, decides that he's going to banish both bolingbroke and mowbray and it, it's almost like well 
we as the audience are sitting there thinking well was that exactly the right thing to do what 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 might we have done in that scenario um in, in the 1960s and 70s it was quite popular in shakespeare criticism to think of a of an ambivalent shakespeare a shakespeare who doesn't who kind of suspends his judgment a kind of skeptical shakespeare if you want uh i'm thinking of critics like uh, ap rossiter or uh, maybe William Empson, you know, with his seven different types of ambiguity. Mm. Um, do you do you think Shakespeare suspends judgment in that way that he kind of just leaves it all up in the air for judgment and doesn't really come down on one side or the other, or do you think that he actually does come down on uh, on a certain side on certain issues? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say I think it really does depend on on the particular play. So there, and and the particular moment, even within within some plays. Um, so certainly, I, I would I would agree on the larger question in terms of uh, you know how does how, how do we can we characterize Shakespeare? You know, for example, uh, you know, in in some very clear way about having a set of uh, of positions that that could be roughly aligned with with progressive or conservative or something in between kind of thinking. I, I don't think he I don't think he tips his hand there. Um, why that is? Uh, there's lots of theories. Uh, the one that makes most sense to me is that the the largest um, or the most expansive uh, presentation would appeal to the largest audience, and he was a businessman. Uh, yeah, so, the commercial reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that that's compelling. If you alienate certain people with your art, you're going to lose. You're going to lose box office. So. Um, but but I also think that that is part of the genius is is presenting uh, the the case so even handedly um, that that it really does allow for um, for multiple you know uh, conclusions that aren't necessarily pinned down. That that said, I, I think there there are clear cases where um, where there's there's condemnation. I mean, I don't I don't think there's any question uh, you know in Macbeth, for example, that that you know we're we're seeing. Um, a Macbeth who who should not be admired. <laughs> so, no. um, but that's that that's not the most interesting thing about the play. So, I guess I would have to agree with the those uh, who are in favor of the the suspending judgment. The the times when it matters the most, uh, I think, are the times when it it's the it's the least clear on his part. And and I think the critics who have tried to establish. Um, very clear political programs on the part of Shakespeare. For example, Shakespeare as a populist thinker. For example, mm-hmm. I won't name names, but um, yeah, I think that that argument falls apart uh, because you have to you have to really uh, cherry pick your examples if you want to make that case. Because uh, you know, as for as many examples that we see Shakespeare looking like a populist. Uh, elsewhere, he he looks very much like a a, a, a monarchist or uh, you know a, a traditionalist. So I, I I worry about those kinds of broad sweeping um, you know judgments. But I think individual moments uh, there there clearly seem to be judgments being made, um, and those are those are valuable. Um, I I can give one example. Uh, it strikes me that uh, you know Claudio at the altar and Much Ado About Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's an argument, a historical argument that would say that, uh, his own, um, you know, sort of pride had been so wounded by the betrayal, even though it was, you know, not recognized accurately, uh, that he acted in a way, um, that was, uh, in keeping with the sort of, um, 
moral and 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 courtly code of honor that that he needed to defend. But I think that the portrayal there clearly shows his behavior as being um, unacceptable uh, in the same way that Othello's argument that he is going to act as the the sort of justice to protect future men from the fate of women uh, is not accurate. It actually it sounds like it could be related to a, a code that would be valuable, but it it really isn't. It doesn't hold up. So there, it seems to me, Shakespeare's clearly taking a position. Don't don't be like these guys. <laughs> um, but I don't think that means that he's necessarily a whole scale uh, on one side or the other of of larger issues. Now, I sometimes wonder if this could be a, a maybe even a disturbing aspect of Shakespeare's thinking. I mean, I, I often joke with students that, um, you know, had Shakespeare written uh, George Orwell's 1984, you know, you, you read a novel like 1984 by Orwell, and there's no real doubt that Orwell is not really up for Big Brother or totalitarianism. <laughs> right. um, but I imagine that if Shakespeare had written that, you you wouldn't be sure. Maybe 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 he is secretly up for Big Brother, and we're just not. You know, he'd give very compelling arguments, at least on the other side. And I yeah. I, um, I wonder if there's sometimes uh, a, a bit of that. You know, running all the way through the plays. You know, where where it's so ambiguous that um, it, it's it's almost dark at times. I'm thinking of something like. Um, I don't know, Measure for Measure, which is a play, you know, entirely wrapped up around uh, kind of dark totalitarian systems. And it's just not clear where the play stands on them. Um, do, you th- do you think, do you see that as a troubling or exciting thing? Or? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that if, if, you're, if you're looking for, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, confirmation that, for example, literature teaches us uh, how to to be free from oppressive structures and and how to see through um, you know ideology. Uh, I do think that that is true in many cases, and and it's frustrating with Shakespeare because he seems to be willing to side uh, with uh, you know completely diametrically opposed <laughs> ideologies. But at the same time, what I guess is most interesting for me about what we can actually learn and how Shakespeare helps us become more supple thinkers is that uh, in doing that, in, in not tipping his hand, what he does really well, I think, I'm using he, by the way, here, we, you know, as the collective Shakespeare, the, the, the early modern theater in which he wrote. Um, so that would include collaborators and things. But what, what these plays do is they, uh, you know, they really, I think, allow us to see as valuable as 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 possible and real, the kinds of uh, modes of thought that lead characters to do things that then you can condemn, which I think is very valuable ultimately as a sort of ethical question because it's it's vacuous to simply say uh, you know this character's bad and they did the wrong thing. We don't learn anything that way. They're, they're, you know basically we say that they're sort of morally ignorant or something like that, and that's why. Uh, you know, that's why they do it. And we need to condemn it when we see it. And I think Shakespeare wants to say we're all possible uh, you know, victims of the kind of thinking that leads some of his characters to these terrible places. And measure for Measure is a great example. Um, Angelo, one of the sort of, you know, most reviled of, of Shakespeare's <laughs> villains because of what he actually does in, in, in coercing a nun for sex, uh, you know, in order to save her brother. Uh, 
or a, an almost none, uh, you know, that, that seems so bad. How can we possibly think of this character as someone who we can learn anything about ethics from, except for as a negative example? And I don't think it's that way. I think that what, what Shakespeare is, is interested in there, and, and you could add Middleton to this, is showing how uh, someone who, if we really, really understand the way they think, could be led to do something that is completely out of keeping with their own moral value set. Uh, and that has to do with uh, a set of circumstances that were unexpected. Um, and being able to see that, I think, is then something that will allow us to maybe see a little bit more clearly um, when we're faced with, with the kinds of problematic ethical decisions and also problematic people. Uh, one of the things we learn is in daily life, just to demonize other people doesn't actually make them go away. They, they tend to still be there. We just don't have dialogue with them. Uh, and Shakespeare populates his plays with, I think, some pretty compelling people who we might be tempted to demonize until they become so interesting that we can't ignore them. Yeah, I mean, that, that actually chimes a lot with the way I've been thinking about ethics uh, the, myself uh, recently. And I've, I've been trying to describe exactly what you're uh, talking about there, uh, James. And the phrase I've come up with is something something approaching a kind of situated empathy. Does that sound right to you? Where where it's always in a particular situation, but it's also um, an, an empathetic way of looking at the individual, not a judgmental one, not a, not one that seeks to condemn, but first one that seeks to understand. Yeah, I, I like that very much um, because I think I, I think that is exactly how how these plays function. And it's, it's something that I think we resist until you look more closely. If think of, you know, especially sort of students who are just being introduced to Shakespeare, it's much more, I think it's easier to sort of think, oh, you know, this is, I'm understanding who I'm supposed to model and who I'm supposed to condemn. Um, but that, and that ends up being sort of the, the, the entry level, uh, you know, sort of judgment after that becomes much more interesting. I think when people try to figure out how, what, what the, the, the motivations are and, it, and to give another example, one of, one of the reasons I think why Iago frustrates people so much because he's one of the few, uh, characters who is, is very hard to become empathetic with because he doesn't actually give you. Uh, a sort of coherent set of circumstances or situational um, explanations that would allow you to say, oh, I see what led him to do that. Um, whereas most of the other characters do pr produce that sort of um, situational empathy that you describe. Yeah, I mean, it, is there anything that we can actually extrapolate? You know, because ethics is obviously a, a, a live question for all of us all, you know, everybody just living their life in now in 2016 has to think about, uh, you know, making ethical decisions. And I, I wonder, if is, is there anything that you can take from that? Uh, one of the things I've thought about, James, is um, is uh, is politics, it's especially, um, you know, I've, I've, when I look across the, uh, the ocean there, I see Donald Trump is one of the presidential candidates. And uh, all I ever see on my uh, social media feeds is moral outrage about this and condemnation. Uh, we experienced something in this country not so long ago, uh, Brexit, and it, yeah. similarly, all I all I see on my own kind of echo chamber is moral condemnation. Uh, but but I wonder if you know is that the way that Shakespeare would look at it? Would he would he actually try to under, start to understand uh, where um, you know where people are coming from, uh, even if they stand for things uh, you know for which I you know some of us find abhorrent. 
Yeah, I, that's, <laughs> I think that that's that's exactly the the connection, and it's it's a difficult one to make, especially uh, I think you know as as things have become much more um, polarized in, in the in the American situation in particular. It's even in from when I started my career to now that the political situation has really become so polarized that you get the sense that there's no dialogue at all. And it's very tempting to stay in that echo chamber and, and hear the things that you want to hear. Um, but that's, I think that is the lesson. There's, there's, there's no way that that makes any impact on uh, the other side, just, just echoing the things you already believe. So trying to understand what could have possibly motivated an interest in you know one of our candidates, for example, I think is crucial, and I do think that's how Shakespeare approaches ethical questions, and why we don't see uh, the sort of didacticism that you do get in some uh, you know other other literature, even you know, even a, a playwright like Johnson, um, who you know is is magisterial. Um, it's it's fairly clear, obviously, <laughs> in many of his satirical moments, wh- where where he stands. Um, and there's a little less to say about it. Um, you know, you, you, you have a hard time redeeming uh, characters who are being, you know, sort of caricatured for their, for their moral failings. Um, but that, that, that's not what Shakespeare does. And I think that has something to, there's an argument, of course, that Shakespeare is, is so central because we've built him up as a, as a, as an institution and we've, we've buoyed his, his um, reputation through repetition and education. But Having read, you know, wi- widely in the period, it is a different approach, and there's much less uh, of that kind of judgment, I think, in Shakespeare than than there is in some of the other literature, and I think it makes it more accessible. the The didactic in literature, uh, it, it it dates it, it it localizes it, makes it much more topical, and I think you tend to get uh, a much more um, of an invitation to understand in Shakespeare, which. I think hopefully we we can import into our politics uh, as frightening as that seems. Um, it's safer, of course, to ponder the potential humanity of Angelo because he's a fictional character <laughs> uh, to say, what can we see this guy as a real guy, even though he's done such horrible things? Uh, that's OK. It's a little harder when you're talking about someone who might be leading your country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, w- w- one of the things that we we uh, we may be skirting around here that I should ask you is that, you know, but by extrapolating from from a Shakespeare play to our modern situation, we're we're kind of making a trans historical move there, and by saying that the, that um, you know Shakespeare's plays are not didactic like some of his contemporaries are, are we in some way getting towards a position to say that there is a kind of universality in uh, in you know the way that Shakespeare thinks, or, or, or there's something in Shakespeare's plays that is able to, uh, in, you know, that is able to speak to everybody, because uh, because that's another idea that hasn't been in fashion for for some time in Shakespeare studies. So, just uh, th- invite yeah. you to comment on that. Yeah, I mean that's it's and it's it's interesting. I mean, I think some of the worst, uh, you know, sort of uh, I, I don't know reductions of Shakespeare have come out of exactly that kind of thinking. So in the American context during the the Reagan era, there was a guy named William Bennett, who you may have heard of, who wrote a book called The Book of Virtues. And um, he approached literature and Shakespeare in particular, liked Shakespeare very much, but he would teach a play like, or talk about a play like Macbeth and say, the reason to read this play is to understand how to avoid, you know, overwrought ambition. 
And that seems to me a completely wrong-headed way of approaching the plays, and 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 serve you know as as the, the impetus, rightly so, for rejecting that kind of uh, idea that Shakespeare represents all of uh, human nature, and that then we can just look into the plays and, and reflect on it. I, I I see that as 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 deeply problematic. I think a more sophisticated recent attempt to bring the, the possibility of that, um, you know, meaningfulness of Shakespeare into the present uh, has been through the, the sort of critical school of thought called presentism, which has mm-hmm. garnered its own, you know, uh, amount of, of criticism. Um, but the, the, the basic idea, I think, there, uh, regardless of whether you buy all of the readings, is that there has to be some, uh, you know, relevance for these works or else why are we reading them? And that is, I, I think I share that as a, as a core idea, it doesn't mean that that the that the values in the plays have have existed unchanged, but it does mean that the texts are um, are are complicated enough and rich enough that they can support our own exploration of ideas that are relevant right now, even if that exploration is somewhat different from the exploration that the original audiences might have had if they were exploring at all, if they were just enjoying the the, the theater. That's one thing, but I think. There's enough philosophy, there's enough more reflection on ethical behavior, moral behavior, politics, that those, there had to be ideas there in, in the Renaissance when people were watching. Um, they may not have been the same ones that we're seeing now. I think that has to be said. Uh, but clearly, uh, the plays speak to issues that are current, even if they need to be updated. Um, and so I think we can... We can sort of skirt that line. We don't have to say this is a universal human value that Shakespeare is, has clearly identified and it's unchanging and that's why we still read it. Uh, but he's touching on something that has to do with humanness. And I, I, I would be willing to go out uh, on the un, uncomfortable position and say that I think that, that we are human, at least in some way, that resembles the way that people were human in the 16th century and that were human in the 12th century and the 5th century and, and et cetera. I think that denying that there is some connection seems to me, again, an, an overly um, you know, sort of absolute position and that it's untenable, uh, as untenable as the, the alternate, which is that those, cha- those human values have not changed since time immemorial. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that the the ultimate crime of anachronism is the is the. I mean, that's the, that seems to be the the charge that is brought again and again when people tr- attempt to make these sorts of moves. Um, mm. So it's maybe 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 softening the softening the stance on what counts as anachronistic and what and what doesn't. Maybe I, I, I don't know. Well, an, an anachronism is an interesting thing in itself, in itself, which is this idea that if, if you're anachronistic, you don't understand how history worked. Um, my favorite anecdote from, from working on Hollinshed's Chronicles was finding at the end of the massive book, uh, a little note in the false escaped section, which would be the, you know, corrections in modern day or the, you know, addendum. Then it said, um, you know, in the false escape, uh, you may have noticed that there were guns when in periods before they were, uh, you know, invented, were aware of that, um, and we don't care, essentially, that's, I'm broadly <laughs> paraphrasing, but this idea that uh, there was a sort of lack of understanding of history in the, in the 16th century is not true. They, they understood that one thing followed after another, but they did have a different sense of why you might want to think of history um, 
even with anachronisms, as Shakespeare's often uh, criticized for, um, because it does a different kind of work. You know, putting putting pistol in in an earlier uh, era as a character is a is a way of you know sort of just drawing attention to the different ways in which historical periods interact with one another. So it doesn't have to be simply a naive error. And I think that's sort of maybe what we should consider now, saying that we can uh, we can think about things related to our own era by reading, you know, uh, King Lear doesn't mean that King Lear explains our moment, but uh, it, it means that, you know, there's still something there. Okay, well, I'll ask you my last question now, which is what developments would you like to see in Shakespeare scholarship and criticism over the next few years? Uh, well, I've I've really, I think, I, I, as I started out by talking about what the climate was when I when I began, I, I'm I'm somewhat heartened by the fact that my general sense is that students these days are really allowing their work to emerge from the texts themselves. So to study, the, and by texts I mean broadly, not just the literature, but the other materials that they're looking at, which was a a gift that new historicism and cultural materialism gave us, but allowing those ideas to come out of the text and then methods, theories, explanations, philosophy, that stuff uh, accrues to those readings based on um, the best fit rather than, I, I think what I was frustrated with for, for some years was the sense that you became a card-carrying feminist Marxist, you know, cultural materialist, new historicist, and then every reading that you did had to conform to that methodological predilection. And it led to, I think, a lot of derivative work that, that people essentially um, got bored of. And so the, it's, it, I think the refreshing thing and what I want to see more of, and I'm already seeing it, is, the, is this much more natural attention to what's really going on the spirit of exploration of the texts and then see where, where it goes. The other thing I would say that I think needs to happen and would be useful is uh, 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 trying to, to soften this idea that it's either or. So you are the, the thing that I think followed on, on new historicisms, what we call, um, and this has a lot of different variations, but a sort of various kinds of materiality or materialism. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, you know, new historicists, they found anecdotes, but materialists find stuff, you know, and now stuff has more purchase on critical currency. Um, I think those kinds of rejections of one view wholesale in favor of uh, the newest thing have not served literary studies or Shakespeare studies particularly well. So uh, a little bit more of the generosity. I've been, I've been pleased to see people going back to, to people like you know, Wilson Knight um, and then thinking about it in relation to what's happened since. So not just being a, you know, a, a Wilson Knight you know, sort of follower, but saying, hey, there was some, there was some really interesting insight there mm -hmm. uh, that in, you know, with all of everything that's happened since, we can update and add to. So I, I think that additive, um, more generous spirit of criticism is what I'd like to see. Yeah, it, I, I still use uh, G. Wilson Knight when I'm teaching some of the plays. I, I, find, uh, I find he's a very interesting critic to um, turn plays on their head, make students yeah. think about them in a completely different way. You know, yeah. I, I, I always think about his, uh, his reading of Hamlet, where he essentially says, well, Claudius was quite a good guy, actually. Um, <laughs> um, you know, Hamlet's the true villain of the piece. Uh, and, you know, that especially if they've done Hamlet in school, that tends to make them think 
uh, about the plays in a different way. Um, right at the start of the uh, uh, interview, James, uh, you talked about you know a sense of you know just after that moment of high theory, people not really knowing what the next big thing was. And from what you've just said, um, am I right in thinking that it's almost a good thing that there is no next big thing that we can actually live in this moment with a plurality not everybody has to do the same sort of work yeah I, I, that's exactly what i think i i i still i think people are are unfortunately still yearning for a new big thing and, and this is you know institutional you know it's it's about academia in general we have to publish and we have to you know we have to disseminate our work and so people worry that if they do work that is not current they you know they won't be able to get it out there but i yeah i, I think the draw of 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 being in the the wave that's coming is is less powerful now, and I think that that's a positive thing. So even if we can name a couple different, uh, you know, sort of emerging critical schools, they're not um, they're not exclusive. If you're if you're interested in environmental or eco criticism, doesn't mean that you reject everything else. And I think there was a there was a point at which uh, these schools of thought were in such con- uh, conflict with each other that there was a sense that you know. If you were, you know, if you were a cultural materialist, you, you believed that the new historicists were wrong. You know, right, and yeah. I'd rather see more voices, uh, more ways into the texts, and I think that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the cultural materialists in particular had a habit of essentially just writing off what lost swathes of people as being essentialist humanists. So, right. <laughs> you know, we, we we mentioned Wilson Knight, we also mentioned A.C. Bradley and L.C. Knight, and in, in the hands of a cultural materialist, they're all just essentialist humanists you know we uh, we we have to start again type thing um and and on just um, my final uh, question on this um and uh, you know given that you your interest has been around ethics and these questions of moral philosophy recently um do you think we've seen a kind of widening you know so rather than the high points of theory has there been a widening of theory out into just philosophy in general yeah, I would put it that way exactly, and I think that's that's a welcome thing to, for me, especially. I, I one of my as I came up as in some ways a theorist, um, but my my heart was always with the philosophical tradition, and one of my you know sort of misgivings about literary theory is too often it it began with the kernel of. Uh, philosophy and then became something that wasn't really either philosophy or literary criticism. It was its own thing. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure that that was necessarily good. I, I do see now a return. When people are talking about ethics, they're not simply talking about the most trendy uh, ethical thinkers who have been imported into literary criticism or Shakespeare studies. They're going back you know, to Aristotle and they're going through the tradition. Uh, and I think that that's, that's true of, of really a lot of the theoretically uh, inflected work. My work is very influenced by phenomenology. And I think you know the, the people who are doing phenomenology and, and theater are they're, they're reading the, the the tradition from Husserl forward, and that's that's a positive thing because it it gives a real depth to the work. Well, James Knapp, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm.